Good morning, Redeemer Church family. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the elders here at the church, and I have the privilege of walking us through Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7 over these next several months. We began last week a 22-week series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you're new to us today, if this is your first time with us, we're glad that you're here. But I do want you to know something. I'm convinced that God has you here in the UAE for a reason. Maybe you've just moved here this summer, and I want you to know that God makes no mistakes, that he planned from before time began that you would be sitting here today on the Arabian Peninsula. But here's the thing. He's not brought you here primarily for a job or for a career. Now, you need work. Maybe you got on a plane because you got a job here. But I want you to know that God has more purposes for you than what we can see. And ultimately, the reason God has you here is so that you would know and love Jesus more. That's why you're here. We were made by God to be in a relationship with him. That's our purpose. And so, friend, you find yourself in our worship gathering today. You're in the right place. And we hope we keep seeing you. We hope that you will continue to plug into the church and get to know other believers and not waste your time here in Dubai. Because if our purpose is to know and love God and to know and love God more, that's why he's brought you here. And we pray that your time in Dubai would be a time of great spiritual growth. That you'd be connected to the church, that you would grow. And you've come at a great time. Pastor Scott mentioned the ladies' Bible study happening today. We have ministries like our youth group and other things kicking off. And then this very series. Last week, I did an introduction of the, the whole Sermon on the Mount. But you find yourself today kind of in the, the day where we're, we're going to dig in. We're going to jump into the text. And so you've come at a, at a good time. To recap, last week, we saw that these chapters in Matthew... This sermon that Jesus preached is all about life in the kingdom of God. It's about what a follower of Christ looks like. It's about life in the kingdom now and forever. And we learned that there's a a missional emphasis in the sermon. In fact, in the main section, the beginning of the main section of the Sermon on the Mount, we see that as Christians we're to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. In fact, that verse and that section, verses 13 through 16, really set up the entire sermon. It's that we would let our light shine, that we'd be salt, and we would be light in the world in such a way that those crowds that are gathering around Jesus would become disciples of Jesus. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. But before we do, we're going to take some time to look at the Beatitudes or, or the blessings. This section, these verses that DK just read for us are really the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And these Beatitudes, they tell us what the character of a disciple of Christ looks like. Before Jesus talks about what disciples do, He talks about who disciples are. This is very important. We have to start with with this. 
What is the character of a follower of Christ? I mean, what do you think? I mean, if I were to give you a few moments just to open up your bulletin and there in the sermon note page to write down the eight character qualities of a Christian, what would you write down on the list? What would they be? Would any of these have made the list? Loyalty, kindness, boldness, confidence, wisdom, intelligence. Well, that's really not a bad list. I mean, what, what would be on your list? Well, we'll be, we'll be considering this question over the next several weeks. And if you have a Bible, you can turn in there to Matthew chapter 5. It's the first a book of the New Testament in a section called the Gospels. The Gospels are where we see the life and teaching of Jesus up close. And we're in the fifth chapter. And we'll be looking at the first beatitude. I've decided to include verses four and five next week. So today, just one verse, just 13 words. And we'll get to that. But before jumping in, let me just take a couple minutes and introduce us to the Beatitudes as a whole. Now, the word Beatitude, it's a rough translation or transliteration of the Latin word Beatus. The Greek word is makarios. Both of these are transliterations of foreign words that can be best understood as blessed. And you might have some, seen some modern translations that use the word happy, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not a good translation. Those who are blessed are certainly happy in some way, but happiness is a, a subjective feeling. Jesus is actually making an objective statement about what God thinks of a disciple. To be blessed is a positive judgment by God on the individual that means to be approved or to find approval. So, for example, the poor in spirit are approved by God. Those who are pure in heart are approved by God. And Jesus actually gives us eight different characteristics. Eight beatitudes, or perhaps nine. There's some debate over the exact number. Depends on how you take the last two verses, verses 11 and 12. Those verses about persecution, is it another beatitude or is it continuing the discussion of the eighth beatitude? Well, the language you see is changed in verse 11 from blessed are those to blessed are you. It's also much longer than the rest. I think those last two verses are actually a key to our understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, as we'll see. But I also think they're an expansion of the eighth beatitude. You also notice in your Bibles there that the first and the eighth Beatitudes share the same reality or blessing. Again, another reason I think that there are, are eight Beatitudes. But those two Beatitudes, they form what's often called an inclusio, or, or you might say a bracket of some kind that has the same beginning and the same end. You know, for both, you see, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the reality of the blessed. It's a literary style. And what it's doing by saying the same thing in the beginning and the same thing at the end, what it's saying is that everything in between, it's all about the same thing. That from start to finish, from first beatitude to last beatitude, what Jesus is talking about is the kingdom of heaven. These are realities of those who are citizens of heaven. And so it's not eight different groups of Christians or eight different groups of people that Jesus is talking about, some who are meek and some who are merciful, nor is Jesus describing the ultra-spiritual, meaning here's eight characteristics. These are the the, the super-Christians. These are, are those really, really, really close to God. He's not doing that either, nor are they a buffet of kingdom attributes, meaning you just pick one or two to follow. It's not a a Friday brunch where you pick a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that. No, these beatitudes are all encompassing. No, these taken together is what a kingdom Christian looks like. This is what a Christian, a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, these characteristics, this is what they're going to look like. And I think this first one is, is, is a key to the rest of the Beatitudes and to the Sermon on the Mount. And it's surprising when you look at it. You know, it's not normally a character quality we think of when we think of areas we want to grow in. I mean, look at what Jesus says in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's our text this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're taking notes, that's really our our main point. It's really our one point. If you want to narrow it down even a little more, shorten it a little more, the, the main point of the sermon is merely a Christian is poor in spirit. A Christian is one who is poor in spirit. Counter to the culture of his day, Jesus starts here in his description of a Christian. And it's important he does. There seems to be an intentional order in the Beatitudes. This one logically in the beginning for good reason. For no one gains entry into the kingdom of heaven apart from it. There's no one in the kingdom who's not poor in spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, this is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom. All the other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. Well, the other Beatitudes are a manifestation of this one. They all flow out of it. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, first, before we take the whole phrase, we need to break it up a little bit. What, What is he talking about when Jesus says poor here? It's interesting because in the ancient Near East, even though many of the peasants had little wealth, no one thought of them as poor. If they had what they needed to live, they weren't considered poor. There's, there's actually a word for this in the original languages. It means to, to have just enough. It's the word used of the widow in Luke chapter 21, the widow who had the two small copper coins. She had enough. She might not have had much, but she had enough. She had enough to eat. She had enough to live. 
That same word was also used of one who did manual labor, maybe a day laborer, one who needed work for the day in order to feed himself or feed his family. But the bottom line is he had work that day. He had what he needed. Now, there's a second word for poor, and it's the word used here. And this word means to be destitute. It literally means to crouch down like a beggar. It's someone who's completely dependent on someone else for breakfast. A homeless person. They wake up each day needing to find food for survival. They wouldn't know where their next meal would be coming from. So when we take the definition of poor and we add spirit to it, the point is a poverty of spirit. That spiritually you have nothing. And spiritual begging, therefore, is your only answer for survival. So to be poor in spirits to recognize your utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. Now culturally, this wasn't something you would aspire to. It was shameful. I mean, in the list of characteristics of Christians, you wouldn't expect Jesus, if you're in the world, if you're a member of the crowd who's starting to crouch in to listen to Jesus preaching, you wouldn't expect this man who you think is a miracle worker and you see his great teaching, you wouldn't expect him to start here of poverty of spirit because no one wants to be told of their weaknesses. No one wants to be, be weak. In their culture or our culture, it's really the same thing today. I mean, the world tells us to be, to be strong. We have a self-help culture. You go into the Kinoi Kunia bookstore at Dubai Mall. Have you seen it? It's, it's huge. They moved to a new location, but it's still a, a huge bookstore. And like any other bookstore, they've divided up the different genres, the different topics of, of books, and they put them in different sections. You may have been as disappointed as, as I was to find out that the Christian book section was about as big as this music stand, not much in it. But there are a couple of genres of writing that have huge sections at the bookstore. And one of those big sections that dominates the store is the self-help section. And if you look carefully at the self-help section, you'll actually notice that a a few of the so-called Christian books are actually placed in that section. And I think the bookstore has it right that those books are not distinctively Christian at all. What they're trying to do is they're trying to boost your self-esteem. Well, the reality is the world is obsessed with self-help. Do what's in this book and you'll be okay. Well, self-help sells. You know, maybe you've heard of things like this. Just believe in yourself. Take care of you. You have the power to do this. You have what it takes. Love yourself. Have some me time and actualize your potential. Envision yourself doing it and you will. Stop listening to negative people. Get around positive people and understand the power of positive thinking. Have you heard these things? Well, the self-help section is huge because people actually buy those books. Now, we're looking for the next trick or tip or life hack. We try to clean up our lives in our own strength. And what Jesus is saying here is just the opposite. 
Blessed are those who first acknowledge that they can't clean their lives up. The blessed are those who know they're poor before God. The blessed are those who know they don't have what it takes. No, you don't have the power to change. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't save yourself. You're helpless. Now, that won't sell any books, will it? I mean, there are no bestsellers titled, You Can't Do It. And there are no bestsellers titled, You Can't Do It, subtitled, You Really, Really Can't. No, no one wants to hear that message. We don't want to be told that we can't do it. That doesn't make us feel really good inside. It doesn't give us the warm fuzzies. It doesn't make us feel like we can change our destiny. We want to think we can help ourselves. So we want. We want to know that we can do it. And yet one of the things that makes Christianity radically unique and set apart from the other world religions is that the Bible acknowledges that the biggest problem in your life is a spiritual one. And you can't solve this problem yourself. It's a Romans 3 kind of acknowledgement where Paul writes, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven turn to God for help. Well, think of it this way. You're about to cross a busy road with your child. There are no stoplights on this particular road. There's no crosswalk. There's lots of busy traffic, but you need to get across. And so you have your little child there, and you try to grab your child's hand to protect your child, to take your child with you. But just imagine in this scenario, your child not wanting to hold your hand. He cries out, no, I can do it by myself. Now, if you have a four-year-old, those are famous four-year-old words. They want to do everything by themselves. Well, imagine you're with your four-year-old and you're trying to cross Sheikh Zayed Road. Now, this is never a good idea. Let me just say that. Just to say it publicly on record, never a good idea. It's not a good idea to cross unless there's a crosswalk and one of those little green men that show you to walk across. We have to be safe. But just imagine that you need to get across. You need to get across this highway. We've certainly seen uh, people try to run across the highway here. I'm not talking about that. But in an emergency, you have your four-year-old there and you're trying to get across, but they just won't hold your hand. What will happen to them if they try to cross that highway on their own. Well, you know they can't do it. You know, they won't survive. That four-year-old has to admit weakness and has to hold on to the adult's hand and let the adult grip and hold its hand. This is similar to what's happening here. If we appeal to our strengths, if we live like that four-year-old saying we can do it on our own, we can do it by ourselves. If we live that way spiritually, the Bible says we are dead. But if we appeal to our weaknesses, if we come to God poor in spirit, poverty of spirit, then the kingdom of heaven is ours. I mean, it's a backwards kingdom. Membership in God's kingdom is for the impoverished. And weakness is the way in the kingdom of heaven. It's backwards. I mean, it's countercultural. The poor in spirit, they're flourishing despite their appearances because they actually possess the kingdom of God. Sure, they may look poor now, but they're citizens of a different land. They're blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And that word theirs is emphatic. It means in the sense of theirs alone, barring all others who are not beggars. None but those who are poor in spirit are in the kingdom. This first beatitude, right from the outset, the very first verse here is killing the idea of salvation by works. Now, should we aspire to these qualities, the beatitudes as Christians? Yes. Should we work hard at exhibiting them in our lives? Absolutely. Do we pray to grow in these areas? Definitely. And yet it is only by the grace of God that we're saved. We can't do these things apart from God's grace working in and through us. We need Jesus. Well, Pastor John Piper uh, was once asked about Christianity. He was asked, isn't Christianity a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? Have you heard that? Have you heard Christianity described as a, as a, as a crutch? If you don't know what a crutch is, maybe if you break your leg or break your hip, sometimes the doctor will give you these kind of metal or wooden kind of sticks and you kind of use them to help you walk, to kind of give you some, some help to get around. But why is a crutch bad? We don't normally look at a person with a crutch and say, wow, that's a bad crutch helping you with your broken leg. Now, why does a crutch become a bad thing when it comes to Christianity? Why is it offensive to people to say that Christianity is a crutch? Or or why does it seem to be a cop-out? Or why does it seem to be uh, something just terrible that someone would depend on a, a crutch to help them in life? Well, it's because a crutch is only good for the broken, It's because a crutch is used for those who are weak. It's because a crutch is used for those who need help. And that's offensive to a self-help culture. Well, when asked that question, John Piper answered the man confidently and said, why, yes, it is. Christianity is a crutch. But he actually said it goes even further than a crutch. It's actually more than a crutch. Christianity is a life preserver, Oh, friend, you and I don't just need a crutch. It's worse than that. Our situation's beyond that. And it's really even beyond a life preserver because not only are we dying apart from Christ, we are dead. We need God to, to raise our dead bodies up. We need God to give us life. We need to flee our pride and cling to Christ because he is our only hope. Well, maybe you're thinking, okay, I'm, I, I'm hearing this, but pastor, I... I'm unsavable. There's no way I could comprehend God offering me life. Maybe you've born children out of wedlock. Maybe you've committed adultery. Maybe you've lied to your spouse. Maybe you've deceived your parents. Maybe you've been addicted to pornography. Maybe you've gambled your, your money away, you've slandered your boss. I, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe there's some sin that you keep falling into again and again and again, and you just can't seem to kill it. You may be thinking, Pastor, there's no way God would ever say about me, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, you, you don't know my life. You don't know what I did last year or even last night. 
But friend, did you notice in this first beatitude, there was no caveats, there was no further explanation. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit and never sinned. There's the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit and those who never committed adultery, those who never murdered, those who never stole, those who never lied, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. No, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, period. Do you see that? He just stops right there. There's no further explanation. There's no caveats. That's it. I mean, here's what that means. It it means good news. It means good news for you, and it means good news for me. It means that anyone and everyone can come into the kingdom of God. The truth is, none of us have a spiritual CV that earns us a spot in heaven. Heaven's gates are open for those who throw that CV away and cling to Christ. Well, listen to what one author has to say about those who come to Christ poor in spirit. Blessed are the physically repulsive, the twisted, the misshapen, the deformed, the too big, the too little, too loud, the bald, the skinny, the fat, the young, and the old, the flunkouts and dropouts and burned outs. Blessed are the broke and the broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the HIV positive and the sick, the brain damaged and the incurably ill, the barren and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time. Blessed are the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, and the unemployable. Blessed are the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced. Blessed are the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved, or emotionally dead. Blessed are the murderers and child molesters. Blessed are the brutal and the bigoted, drug lords and pornographers, war criminals and sadists, and terrorists. Blessed are the perverted and the filthy and the filthy rich, to those who rob the old and the weak, to the cheat, to the liar, and to the vengeful. End quote. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. No matter who you are or who you were, if you come to Jesus in poverty of spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. God wants us to see heaven's not open to those who have it all together and have no need of Christ, but heaven is open to those who know that they don't have it all together. And this is astounding. And the kingdom of God is not for superheroes who think they're strong. It's for those who know they're weak. We like to say at Redeemer, we're just a bunch of messed up people. Well, it's true, but here's just the thing. We're all messed up but we know we're messed up. Christians are ones who know they're messed up. We know we need help. We're beggars begging Jesus for help. It's like Luke chapter 18. You have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Maybe you remember this. Jesus shares this parable or this story, and in it you have a Pharisee. And a Pharisee, they were uh, the religious people. 
There were the religious men, the men of the law. And in this particular parable, here's the Pharisee, and he's offering wonderful prayers out to God, right, in public, at the synagogue, and at the street corners. And he's giving in public. He's doing all these things outwardly speaking. He seems all spiritual. But you notice in that parable that his prayer is all about himself. Oh, Lord, how great am I. And I'm so thankful that I'm not like that tax collector over there. And then you have the tax collector. And Jesus shares about a tax collector. Not only was a tax collector not religious, but a tax collector was, was a traitor to his people. He teamed up with the enemy Rome and he would tax his own people. He, he would even charge above and beyond the tax in order to, to claim some for himself. He would steal from his fellow, fellow brethren. But here in the, the parable, you have this, this traitor and he can only stand off into the distance. And he can hardly even look up to heaven. Unable to lift his eyes up, he feels the guilt and he beats his chest and he, he can only appeal to God for mercy. Have mercy on me, he cries. All he can do is cry out to God and beg. And then Jesus says something so scandalous. He says, I tell you, it is this man. He's not speaking of the Pharisee. He's speaking of the the tax collector, the traitor. He says, I tell you, it is this man who went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's completely backwards. It wasn't the religious leader. It wasn't the the man there offering prayers in public. It was the traitor who Jesus says went home justified. He gets it. The religious person is out. Oh, friend, if you ever think to yourself, I'm so glad I'm not like that person over there then you've missed it. Then you don't get it. You don't get God's heart. The Christian knows he brings nothing. We know that because God brings the worst of the worst into the kingdom. How do we know God can bring anyone in? Well, the whole Bible attests to it. I mean, the heroes in the Bible are flawed individuals. You have have Abraham. He laughs at God, gets a second wife. You see, David is the adulterer and the murderer. Rahab is listed as a hero of the faith, and she's a prostitute. Peter, well, we we know about Peter. He likes to stick his foot in his mouth and say unhelpful things time and time again. We even read that on at least three occasions, he denies following Jesus. He abandons Christ in his time of need. And then you have Paul wrote most of the New Testament. You have Paul, and think about his life before Christ. I mean, this guy persecuted Christians. He put them in prison, happily applauded even the murdering of Christians. Well, Paul gives us a a list to the church at Corinth, and Corinth was, was a terrible, despicable place. Sin was rampant in Corinth, and Paul wrote some letters to the Corinthians, and in one place he gives a list of those who continuing in their evil cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he says, uh, do not be deceived. 
Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He, he says all that. Those continuing in that unrepentant sin won't inherit the kingdom of God. But then what comes, very, what comes next? What comes to the very next verse there in his letter to the Corinthians is unbelievable. He says, to Christians, to the church at Corinth, he says, and such were some of you. I mean, he's speaking to Christians. He's saying the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, those who practice sex, uh, homosexuality, thieves, greedy, the drunkards, those, those folks, they can't get in if they remain in their unrepentant sin. And then he says, such Oh, fellow Christians, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I mean, the grace that God pours out on his people is amazing. Such were some of you. God can save anyone. Heaven's gates are open wide to the sinner who knows he needs grace. Friend, if you don't know Jesus, this is good news. If you've been immersed in the most wicked sin, this is good news to you. Well, as you consider this truth today, there is no more important question that you can ask yourself than this. Am I really a Christian? Am I a follower of Christ? This is important because eternal life and eternal death hang in the balance with your answer to that question. None of the rest of the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount matter if you can't answer that question with a resounding yes. Now, for some of us, this is an easy question to answer. Maybe this is the very first time you've ever stepped foot into a Christian gathering. You're here to learn more. You don't yet follow Christ. Maybe for some of you, you've been in, uh, attending church for years. You've been to church all your life, and yet you think you've been earning favors from God by what you do or what you don't do. For some of you, you really don't know if you're a follower of Christ. This text is the answer. Are you poor in spirit? Yes or no? A Christian is one who brings nothing to God and trusts in Jesus alone to save them. You may be asking then, well, how does one become poor in spirit? Well, the answer is not to look down at yourself, but it's to look up to God. Once you see his greatness, you'll be able to see and confess your spiritual poverty. Once you look to God and you see him as the holy God of the universe, perfect and loving and just and kind, you look to him and when you see his utter perfection as the one who always existed, as the one who is glorious and great, you will be poor in spirit. You'll be poor in spirit when you see him as the creator and maker of everything in the world. You'll be poor in spirit when you know that he made the mountains and he made the seas. You'll be poor in spirit when you know he made the desert, he made the forest, he made the flowers of the field, he created the creatures in the sea and the animals of the land, and he created you and me. 
And you'll be poor in spirit when you realize that while God created each of us to be in fellowship with him, we've rejected God. We've sinned against him, against our creator. I mean, think of it. This holy creator, God, made us to know him, to to walk with him, to be with him now and forever. And yet because of our sin, we've ruined it all. Our sin brought us death and judgment. But again, in a complete reversal, in what's upside down to us, Jesus faced the death and judgment that you and I deserved. He went to the cross and he took the punishment that was due us. We deserve the cross. And so when you look there at the cross and you see that our great sin and his greater love drove him to the cross, it'll drive us to our knees in poverty of spirit. And when you look at him facing the full overflowing cup of God's wrath for us, we see then that there is nothing that we can contribute and bring to him for our salvation. And when we see the risen Christ who conquered death, we're speechless. We are, st- are stunned and in awe of our God. Oh, friend, when we behold our God, we come to God as beggars. And here's the best news. Lots of good news. But here's the, the best news is that all of us can do this. All of us can come to God poor in spirit. To the young here, Jesus says to the little children, come to me. If you're one of our regeneration teenagers or our jumpstart preteens or even the younger children who may be sitting in the, the service here today, I want you to know, I want you to know that I'm speaking directly to you that the kingdom of God is open to you. You don't have to live a full life and build up a spiritual CV of your good works before you can come to him. You can respond to Jesus by faith today. And you don't have to wait until you get to a certain age. And to the older, you might look back at your past CV and realize it's actually not so good. There's nothing you can do to erase your past on your own. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation either. You don't clean up your life first and then come to Jesus. You'll never get there. Well, friend, you can't rely on your family heritage or your passport country. Your church background and ministry gifting won't cut it. Your morality as one who didn't commit what you consider the, the bad sins is not good enough. Come to him with nothing. If you come to him with no CV, with empty hands, trusting Jesus to save you, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you come to God broken before him, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you come to God trusting Jesus 100% to save you, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. Oh, friend, if you've never done this, turn to him today. Come to him broken and hurting. Come to him as a mess. Come to him with, with nothing. Come to him on your knees begging for grace and mercy. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you desperate and dependent. We are a people in need of your grace. We are poor, we are hungry, and we bring nothing to the table except ourselves. Oh, we need your help. Oh, we need your help. And yet our joy is raised up when we behold and see you for who you are. 
Oh, you created us, you made us, and even in our sin, even though we've rejected you, even though we were your enemies while we were your enemies, Jesus, God in the flesh, came and died for us. Oh, would we behold him there on the cross? Would it drive us to our knees as beggars? Would our hearts melt that we would see you as who you are? Oh, Father, thank you for opening the gates of heaven for sinners like us. Oh, Father, help us to become more and more in poverty of spirit in the days ahead that we would give you all the honor and all the glory and all the praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.